Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of your favorite Northeast Queens podcast, The Breakpoint Podcast, starring myself, Marcus, and my main man, Frankie. Frank, uh, we are here today to wrap up our three-part series of why U.S. tennis is struggling. Uh, part one, we brought on our very special guest, Dylan Roberts. Part two, we had my former teammate and friend, Jan Leitner, join us from Germany. And part three is today uh, just going to be us, me and Frank, kind of wrapping up a little bit of what we talked about in episodes one and two and giving our, uh, our thoughts on the future of American tennis there in episode three. So we hope you enjoy this. Um, if not, then I recommend that you turn this off now. So, yeah, if uh, not, you could add it to the suggestion box. It's, it's also known as Staten Island, just a dump. So go ahead, put it right there. You could send the carrier pigeon over there. Oh my God, Frank, I think we got to stop making New York references at some point. We got listeners all over the world now. Shout out to our listeners. Um, <laughs> anyways, Frank, um, let, let, let's talk about why U.S. tennis is struggling, what we think is going to happen in the future. So what are some of the things that we think need to change in the short term in order to kind of get a Grand Slam champion back up there? Um, I'm actually going to uh, address something first. Um, some of the feedback that we've gotten uh, from listeners has been, how can you really say that American tennis is struggling if America has the United States of America has like, I think it's 13 players in the top 100. We have the, I think we have the most players in the top 100 of any country. It's like us in Spain. Um, simple. Um, do you think that any American can win is a realistic um, top tier blue chip contender for a grand slam? Uh, the no. answer is no. Yeah, no. So. And America's standard in tennis has always been having a perennial top five, top four player um, competing and more junior players in the wings on the come up. Like that is that is the level of excellence that we have come to expect with American tennis. And that is very much gone. The game has overwhelmingly become European dominated. So don't let people like convince you that like this level of American tennis is somehow like good enough. It's not. And like the fact that people, certain people in the tennis industry, like particularly those involved with the USTA, i.e. like Patrick McEnroe, for example, like try to convince you that like, oh, American tennis is good enough and like blah, blah, blah. No, it's not like this is not an acceptable outcome. And I refuse to like let our standards be lowered um, into just like being good enough. Like we were the best country in the world at this sport for pretty much its entire like professional existence. And I refuse to accept like this as being okay. Yeah, I agree with you, Frank. And I also think that another, another issue is not only the fact that none of these guys are actually grand slam contenders. If we're realistic about it, I don't want to hear about Francis Tiafo or Taylor Fritz or right. No, Oppo, no, Fritz, not... Fritz. I disagree. Fritz is the only one where I think you can legitimately make an argument that like, okay, he's a, he's a legit top tier player now. Cause he won Indian Wells and like, you know, he's doing his thing. You think he's winning a grand slam? Do you, do you think In... he even contends for a grand slam? I'm not saying that he does, but I think if you win Indian Wells, you could, in theory, you could be, you should be able to win any of the majors. Indian Wells is the fifth biggest tournament in the world. I, all right, I sort of agree. I kind of agree, but I don't want to get off on that tangent. But, but, but at the same token, like, 
that that tournament could very well be like a lightning in the bottle situation. Like he only won that. Tor- I hate to say that, but like I was going to say he only won that tournament because Nadal was injured, but Taylor Fritz was also injured. So like, fair enough. But um, he, he earned that tournament when he, he also did. No, he did, he did earn that. Tournament. So, well, although I mean, Sverev's hot garbage now, but yeah. Yeah. So I, I Fritz is my only sort of pause. But like even him, is he a perennial top five player? No. Is he in the five top favorites for any of the majors? Forget a hard court, just any of the majors. No. No, and that brings me to my point that I wanted to make that you can't be considered a really a top player or a top country pool of players if for three months you're essentially absent. And what I mean by absent is I mean the clay court season. So if your players are not even contending just even on like the 250 or the 500 level events for three months out of the year, what, what are we what are we really talking about, right? Like we need, back in the day, your Andre Agassiz, even your Sampras's did decent on clay. I know he wasn't the best Michael clay Chang. player. Michael Chang won the French Open. We've got Andre Agassiz Jim won Currier. the French Open. Jim Courier, fantastic clay court player. Um these guys knew how to play on clay, and then all of a sudden we got the Andy Roddicks of the world who would rather probably kill himself than play on a clay court. And now at this point, you know, Isner plays decently on clay, but again, Isner and Opelka, I kind of, I don't, I agree we should keep them in the conversation of American lawyers, but they're also very weird Weird outlier players because they're so freaking tall and they play such an unorthodox. Is John style. Isner gonna win a Grand Slam title or is he too old? Oh, he's way too old. The boat's sailing. Okay, on that. and he you, had a, do you he think had a that sh- Riley Opelka is anywhere near as good as John Isner? I think he can be, but I don't think Riley. Opelka I don't think would. he. See, I disagree. I don't think he is. So I if John Isner's maximum career point was making the ATP like finals, I can't see Riley Opelka like exceeding that. I think it would be very, very difficult. And other players in the world are getting taller. So, like, is the serve thing, like, really that much of an advantage at this point? Like, I don't, I think it's becoming less and less so. It's It's been proven, Frank, that the best tennis players ever, ever, the perfect tennis height is probably anywhere between basically six feet and six foot three. Because if you're any taller, you're losing that necessary speed. Um, and if you're any shorter, you're missing the lack of height on the serve and also just wingspan effect into this on your stroke. The tallest the number one the ever, world. the tallest number one ever, Marat Safin was only 6'4". That's it. Daniil Medvedev just passed him. Thank yeah. you. Medvedev's That six, is six. very true. That is true. Well, technically he was number yeah. one for like about three minutes and he's 6'5 <laughs> or 6'6". So yeah. Thank, thanks, Daniel. Yeah. You you broke my little soliloquy. No, there, but you so. are right. You are right. Right. Um. Yeah. And and I think the point that that I would say in response to you is is this: Carlos Alcaraz is no is no way he's six feet tall. He's five eleven at most. Um, five eleven, five eleven and a half, maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, and he whips. Not. He whips all of these guys. So there's just, I mean, there's just no, there's no, like, it's like, oh, well, you know, we're doing well. We're developing people. Like we're, we're looking for, I mean, like, like Frank, let's be real. We were again, perennial grand slam champs in every single era, the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, the nineties. And then the early two thousands, we had Roddick at least competing for slams. He won one would make Wimbledon finals. Roddick was a perennial top 10 player, perennial Perennial top top 10 player, number one player in the world. Yeah, there you go. So, 
finalist, um, con continuous finalist, and should have won a Wimbledon, but just kept getting blocked by some guy named Fed. So, you know, Eddie Roddick did what he could, but you know, it, it's 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 just not good enough. And I'm so tired of people telling me like, oh, like we have all of these play like it's great. We have a player who's like 20th in the world, like not anymore. Fritz is much higher now. He's like 11 or 10, but like. I, I'm just so tired of it. And like Fritz, Fritz, I actually will disagree with you on. Uh, I'll defend Fritz a little bit. Like Fritz is able to play on the dirt. Like he has a complete game because his backhand actually might be better than his forehand. Like Fritz is such an anomaly in comparison to every other American tennis player. That's why he's doing well is because he doesn't mind playing on, on he's clay the, courts. He's the he, best American player, but Frank... Does By he, far. Does, does he, but does he win clay court events? No, but he'll get to the quarterfinals five, of the, oh, of a thousand court. level. That's oh, good. I mean, okay, that's not bad. Yeah, that's not bad. And what about like smaller events though? You know what I mean? Like, come on. You like, well, they you don't gotta... travel. That's the other issue is that American players, like they're not going to these European two fifties and five hundreds and competing on the clay court as much as they should be. They just kind of like take it off or like they don't even bother because they know they're going to get rinsed. And that's another problem that I have and that I actually, here's a deep throwback for you. An American player who used to do this and I had mad respect for him for doing this was Jared Donaldson. He back in the day would, instead of playing, you know, he could have easily chickened out. I mean, okay, I'm not going to say chicken out, but he could have easily played the North, like some, you know, North American hardcore tournament that was like indoors, kind of like the New York Open, rip New York Open, but like something like that. Uh, instead, he used to go down to Argentina and play on the dirt. And I respected that for him because he that's also did pretty well do. there. And that's what they should do because they need exposure to the clay court game in order to fully develop themselves. And I think that's kind of one of the things that I you know, was trying to get at is that if America wants to get better at tennis, we need to bring in some red clay courts into this country fast because this hard true thing that we've got going here is essentially a hardcore with sand on it. Ask any single European who's played on that thing. They're like, yeah, this is a joke. You guys call this clay. It's so fast that it replicates a hardcore. So your game is not fully developed as it would be if you train on clay. I'm not saying we got to train on clay all the time because in Spain, they also play on hardcore and on clay court, but like actual red clay. So you learn how to play the game. You develop those physical your movement, features. Your movement, movement, your anticipation. That's all from clay. Point building, point building, strategy, yeah. mental toughness, you name it. So again, the red clay court thing is, is big. And Frank. It's, it's also I, I will just I'll just add this. Like, um, you know, my my girlfriend is is from California and she, and I've met I've met other players from California, and they've all pretty unanimously told me like clay doesn't exist there. Like that is not a surface that's there, which is mind blowing to me. Like to not climate. even hard true. Dude, yeah, well, that's due to climate. I was just in Colorado. There's also no clay courts. It's due I, to climate. That's crazy though. That's crazy. It's due I to mean, climate. They literally can't. Like you can't maintain. You can't water the courts. Yeah, I get you it. Can't maintain. First of all, they have no water there. First, I mean, you know that that's that's a problem in and of itself. And then second of all, the humid. The climate is so dry that the water that does end up in the air. It uh, doesn't really stay there for long, so that court's going to consistently be dry. So I kind of get that, but at least in Florida, where it's just a humid armpit, essentially, the clay courts live and breathe down there. I don't understand why we can't get more red ones there, but that's for another for another day, Frank. Talk to me a little bit on your thoughts on the college tennis scene in America that's kind of been slowly getting progressively better every single year, pumping out more pro players. 
is this hurting or helping American tennis players and the American tennis scene? And we're actually going to do an episode with my friend Pete uh, on a on a similar topic to this. But I want to get your thoughts on this. Yeah. So this was a little bit of a precursor to probably what's going to be our next series, which is college tennis um, and its role in in professional tennis and and, and all that. But um, my honest answer is I don't know. Um, I would think yes, right? Because the benefit of college tennis and why college tennis has risen uh, within the past few years is that players' peaks are occurring much, much later in their career. Like I would say pre, you know, big three, the average player was peaking around 26, 25 years old, maybe even younger, quite honestly. Uh, Whereas now you're seeing the peak be closer to 30 you know, if yeah, like pretty much 30. So obviously that means that not everyone can afford to sort of just get shellacked on the tour from the ages of 18 to 22 years old, unless you're an outstanding bright talent like Yannick Sinner or Carlos Alcaraz. So you need those years to develop. And that's sort of why college tennis makes a lot of sense because your training is covered. You're playing against really good competitors. You're getting a ton of match time in. You're traveling. All your medical expenses, travel expenses, all paid for. And you get an American university degree. So it's really a compelling argument. Oh, and you could still play satellite and futures events now um, because of the regulation changes. So that's another reason why college tennis, I think, is really going to become a very popular option globally. Maybe not for the Europeans, but I think with South American players, um, I could definitely 100% see that happening. Um, I I would I would anticipate it being positive. Um, however, my one caveat would be, and this is where I think you can probably shed a better light than I can. A lot of players in American college tennis are brought in from other countries, not America. So is it really going to be benefiting American tennis or is it just going to become like a conduit for development of the rest of the world? I'm so glad you mentioned that, Frank, because that's something I was going to touch on and that I wanted to touch on uh, in the next series that we're going to do. But I'm going to basically brief it here. I think that it actually ends up. What happens is if, if, if the American development system, junior development system is not up to par with the European or the South American. What happens is these coaches here in America who want to win, they will simply bring in all these European uh, student athletes who are who have a certain type of hunger. They mature a little bit better also mentally, in my opinion, at an earlier age. And what happens is they end up taking over these spots at these universities, whereas... The American players will then end up, and and I've heard this from parents as well, they complain that like, oh, all these Europeans are taking away our scholarships and stuff. Well, maybe you just need to get better and maybe we need to develop a better junior development. Am, am, I, am I making sense here, Frank? Yeah, no, I, I'm no, I'm with you. I'm 100% with you because listen, the, the, the answer is this. We're talking about the rise of college tennis becoming more popular. Name the players that played in college tennis that we're thinking of. Name them. It's Cam Nori, not Cam American. Nori, Kevin Cam Anderson. Arthur Rinderneck, not American. Kevin Anderson. Kevin Anderson. Not American. Again, not American. Uh, Maximi Cressy, who technically is American, but was not born here. 
played uh played guess in where France he grew up for, playing tennis yeah he grew yeah. up playing in France so there you go boom yeah so again like I could go down this li- this this rabbit hole but yeah I I think that's kind of the the concern that I have looking at it but for all the reasons that I just mentioned before I do think that college tennis is going to start playing a much bigger role in uh the ATP um you know as to whether it's good or not I guess we'll see um the thing that I want us to wrap up here like wrap up this series is what are the things that after speaking with Jan and speaking with Dylan what are the things that American tennis needs to do better? And I think that you had just touched upon it. And that's why I brought this question up just now is the American development of point construction and strategy is abysmal. It is absolutely abysmal. Like you look at any like generic European player in comparison to an American player. It is, it is, it's night and day. There are way they have way more options, way they have many more ways to win a point than most American players do. Um, And that is simply because there is an emphasis in American tennis development of have a big serve, have a big forehand one, you know, the plus one like that is the live and breathe like die way of playing American tennis. And because it's so one dimensional, it becomes very, very, very hard to adjust on the fly in a match when that plus one isn't working, when your forehand's not good this day, when it's really windy out and you're just not able to push your serve through like that, all of a sudden, you know, your game is you're, you're, you're barren. Right. Whereas I feel like these European players and South American players have so many more options that they have developed in their game that they're almost able to play chess while most American players are playing checkers. I think you, the key word that you highlighted, and that's going to be the most important word in this whole conversation, is the word develop. And the reason for that is that if you notice, and and tennis has a sort of Darwinism to it, right? So if you grow up playing only on clay courts, you're going to see that in your grip and in the type of strokes that you have and maybe your lack of ability to really volley well. Um, just because of the nature of the game that you always play. So if you're always playing on a clay court, for example, you're going to have really high topspin strokes. You're not going to be able to really hit through the ball generally. Your volleys are not going to be the greatest, and maybe your offensive game is not going to be the greatest. On the other end of the spectrum, if you grew up only on hard courts, the tennis Darwinism is kind of dictate, okay, big serve, big forehand, because that's rewarded most on fast hard courts, right? A backhand is not necessarily that important now if you look at the best players in the world which are mainly from europe they do a blend of playing on clay court and then in the summertime or i'm sorry uh, in in the winter time they play on, on on carpet or on hard court surfaces so they get an overall blend of of tennis where they can develop their strokes on the clay court and develop their mental toughness and whatnot and fitness and, and their fitness very good point and then they can also learn the offensive game, the volleys, and all these sorts of things when they go and play on hard courts. Another thing I'd like to add here, Frank, is that within the development, I believe that too much emphasis is placed. Now, this happens in Europe as well, but not as much. There's too much emphasis placed on winning in the short term in America because what happens is all these kids are trying to get college scholarships. So they're sacrificing your long-term development, right? So you could have maybe some poor strokes, but you could just be a really good tennis player. But the poor strokes are going to come back to haunt you eventually in the future. 
but they don't care because it's like right now you need to win when you're 12, 14, 16 so that you can get that scholarship. Uh, and then whatever happens afterwards, whatever, we'll try to figure it out. But at that point, it's too late to change some things. The European system is much more long-term orientated to the point where they don't even mind having losing results early on in the juniors and even mid-juniors as long as you're on the right trajectory. I mean, we saw this with, um, I've read Dominic Team's uh, coach's book, Gunter Bresnik. I read his book about team and his development of team. He put, Dominic, I don't care if you win or lose today. I just want you to play the right way. That's all that mattered to him. I said, it will pay off at some point, I promise you. And what happened when Dominic team started to get about 17, 18, he zoomed past the rest of his colleagues, um, I guess colleagues or, you know, contemporaries, you know, growing up uh, playing in Europe. And he got so much better because he had developed a certain style, the certain aggressive style over the years that his coach said, no, we're going to wait, we're going to be patient, and this is what's going to pay off. Yeah, I agree with you. And this is something that, Um, I think you can also talk about even more with your own background, right? Like this is something that you've mentioned to me that like when you were in 12s and even 14s, like you weren't necessarily doing as well because you were playing a certain style. But then all of a sudden when you turned 16 and everybody's bodies were filled out at that point, you were playing way better than everybody else around you because you had taken the time to development and go through the growing pains while you were 12 and 14. And now that it matters when you're 16, when those college coaches are really watching, you are ready to go. And it really separated you from the field. Yeah. And I have to give my dad a lot of credit for that because he also made me volley a whole lot when I was younger and most kids weren't really volleying. And he would tell me, Marcus, listen, I know this is frustrating. You're not really winning many points at net, but this is not for now. This is for when you turn 18, 19, 20, when you're playing college tennis and thereafter. And he was absolutely right. He hit the he hit the nail on the head with that one. So yeah, it's more. I think the I think Frank basically just to wrap this up and let me know if you want to add any points here. I think one court services we got to mix it up more with some actual clay courts, not this hard true baloney that's going on. Two more of a long term view in terms of development. And three, and this is kind of touching about what Jan said, is that we need to make tennis a little bit more communal and a little bit less business oriented club oriented club oriented that is the phrase that Jan used that is a hundred percent right and i'm going to even go beyond the scope of like junior development and talk about like us like right now like us as like you know post-college you know just casual tennis players like that we just love the game and play it for fun um if it was more club oriented we would have many more opportunities to be playing. It would be way more affordable to play. We would be more likely to have our future kids play. Like all of it sort of stems like right from this discussion, right? If you're able to make it more club oriented, you're going to get more people be interested in the sport. The sport's going to grow and you're going to get better athletes picking tennis as their sport rather than, you know, basketball or, uh, or soccer now, which is also starting to, uh, get a bunch of young American athletes. So again, this is, this is, this is the problem. I, that I think through our discussions that we have uh, highlighted as, as, as what's wrong with, with American tennis. I am in full agreement. And I think that having those two episodes with Dylan and Jan 
really shed a, an interesting perspective on on their thoughts and what's going on. And I think that uh, you know, I think that it's exactly what we needed to hear, and I think that's what other people needed to hear. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're always open for feedback. So if anybody disagrees with us, please let us know. We'll have you on the pod. We can extend the series. Uh, we're here for it, right? So um, yeah. Yeah, I think this series is going to be like a living, breathing thing. Like, it's not necessarily over because we're still seeing, like, this is Taylor Fritz's breakout year by all, you know, metrics. This is his breakout year. So um, this is living and breathing. It's it's not necessarily over yet. And um, I, I, I do think that there is room to fix American tennis. And, but I think that, the one thing that I also will say is Carlos Alcaraz is another example of like American tennis just completely missing the bag again. Is it's just like American tennis, like critics, not critics, but like personalities like Patrick McEnroe and Brad Gilbert have spoken so highly of somebody like Jensen Brooksby, who like, listen, Brooksby, like, he's a good player. I like him. Like, I think he's going to be a perennial top 30 player in the world. But if you're going to put that much hype on a player, and then all of a sudden you see what Carlos Alcaraz does or what Yannick Sinner does, it's just like, who yeah, are you kidding? It's like, let's pump the brakes a little bit. Like, here. what? Yeah. Like, what are we even talking about? Like, can you imagine if somebody like Lorenzo Musetti was American? That the... Because Lorenzo Musetti, in my opinion, is effectively the same player as Jensen Brooksby. Oh, They're stop both it. Like oh, my super, God. It would super, be, he would be all over ESPN. Yeah, he, no. He, super be crafty, all over ESPN. Super crafty, like, really pretty. To, like, uh, Musetti's much prettier to watch than Brooksby is. But, like, the same sort of crafty play style. Like, that's how they play. Um, Like, Musetti's not going to win a Grand Slam. I love him. I think he's wildly entertaining. He's... Fabio Fognini with a one-handed backhand, but you know, he's not winning a major. <laughs> like he's just not, but he's really great and he's great for the game and he's going to be a good player and he's going to be a touring professional. And that's freaking awesome. But like, let's not, let's not pretend that these play, like I, I don't want these players to be portrayed as something that they're not. And, and I, that's, that's my biggest problem with American tennis coverage is that, for so long and too often, like we are portraying players who are American as something that they're not simply because they are American. Frank, you couldn't have said it better. So wrap up the show for us. Sweet. Good job. We didn't even go on too many tangents on this one. Good job, everyone. Nice. No, we got it back. This, this was focused. Now we're going to go <laughs> on the tangent. Here yeah. We go. Now the last three minutes is where the rails go off. Um, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, we know this is a series that everybody seems to have enjoyed. We've gotten a lot of feedback on it. Um, as always, if you want to be on the podcast, feel free to DM us on Instagram. Um, or if you have like our phone numbers, which most of you do, quite honestly, that are listening to this, just text us and we'll get you on. Uh, we're planning on having some more guests on later this month, which I think will be really exciting. We look forward to that. And uh, yeah, any feedback, please DM us. Uh, as always, you can send the pigeon to the Long Island Railroad and uh, it'll make its way over here. And uh, thanks for listening. And we will catch you guys next time. Bye. Catch you on the flippity flip.